Welcome to the Canadian Real Estate Investor, where hosts Daniel Foch and Nick Hill navigate the market and provide the tools and insights to build your real estate portfolio. Welcome back to episode 109 of the Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast. This is the first time we've ever recorded an episode, just you and I, in a studio. Usually, we like to stay as far apart from each other while recording these things. Yeah. But it's nice to be, you know, face-to-face in the early stages of what will be our pretty badass studio that is slowly coming together. It only took us 109 episodes to figure out that we needed, you know, an official studio. I think we did it the opposite way from the realtor meme, which is (laughs) most people spend, you know, thousands of dollars and days of their lives building the perfect studio, and we didn't do that. We spent days of our lives making episodes and great content only to get to the point where we're like, you know, we should probably do some of this on video and, and maybe make it a bit easier and more enjoyable for ourselves to to do these wonderful podcasts. But on that note, my name is Nick Hill. I'm a real estate investor, lucky enough to be co-host of this podcast and a partner at Land Bank Advisors. Uh, reach out for all your mortgage needs. And my name is Daniel Foch. I am a real estate broker at a company called Rare Real Estate and an investor as well. And what are we talking about today? Yeah, we've got a good one today, Dan. Today we are talking about Zuck. You mean Zuck, like Zuckerberg, the guy peering in the window and the Mark, the MMA fighter and founder of Facebook or Meta or whatever they're calling it today? No, not exactly. I am looking forward to that cage fight that is apparently being held at the Coliseum in freaking Rome. And the whole thing is so wild. Also, did you notice that Elon Musk changed Twitter to X today? Yeah. It was very interesting. What's happening? I, like, honestly, there's something broken in the simulation. <laughs> um, anyway, I, I would... Uh, as much as I think it's kind of dumb, I would love to see it happen as well. It also feels <laughs> fake. Um, like in what world in a year do we live where two of the richest men in the world randomly decide to physically fight? I I know. It's it's like neither of them were ever remotely fighters or, or built like fighters to begin with. There's those you know shirtless photos of, of Elon Musk who has a massive barrel chest and it feels like this is like Roman Greek or like Napoleonic era stuff like kings are actually going to fight physical battles and wars with one another but no we are not talking about that and we're not talking about Zuck we're talking about Zek as in Zeckendorf who would have had a fortune worth $25 billion if he was alive today. And who knows, maybe he would have been involved in the new billionaire cage fighting thing that we've seen (laughs) happening. But he was much better known for being one of the best modern day real estate moguls, developers, and just general figures in, in real estate. So let's dive into the life and lessons of one of the greatest real estate greats, William Zeckendorf. Zeckendorf was born to a family in Paris. France? Close enough. Um, Not Paris, Ontario either, (laughs) where houses are actually more expensive than Paris, France, or were for a period of time. Paris, Illinois, Uh in the US of A. He was the son of a hardware store manager, which is just an awesome job. When I retire, that's what I want to (laughs) be. His family moved to New York City when he was three years old. He attended New York University but dropped out to work at a real estate company run by his uncle, Sam Borchard. 
Is that right? Or did I butcher that name? <laughs> he, he soon left his uncle's firm to work with Webb and Knapp, a small New York building manager and real estate brokerage. Now, early on, Zeckendorf's uncle challenged him to fill a half empty building at 32 Broadway. This is all in New York City, which the firm had just purchased. By the time his uncle had returned from a European trip, Zeckendorf had filled all but two small offices in that building. But instead of praise, his uncle demanded to know when he would rent out the remaining spaces. So naturally, he quit the next day. And it was in that moment he realized if he was going to make any money in the real estate space, he decided he would have to do it on his own. He then built Webb and Knapp into a powerhouse. Such a powerhouse, in fact, that the name of his autobiography is Zeckendorf, the autobiography of a man who played real-life Monopoly and won the largest real estate empire in history. Quite the, quite the autobiography title there. He, yeah, I mean... If you read the book, though, which Bold. is one of my favorite, yeah, one of my favorite books. I mean, he he really did, right? Like with new, especially with it all being in New York City and mm-hmm. Manhattan, um, he assembled the parcel on which the United Nations rose in 1947, and also built the Roosevelt Field Shopping Center on Long Island, Century City Complex in Los Angeles, and several urban renewal projects in Philly and Washington D.C. His legacy can be seen coast to coast still to this day as he dominated the nation's real estate industry from the 40s to the 60s. And a lot of people haven't even heard of him. Yeah. I remember when we did the a similar episode kind of profiling Sam Zell and I had told you, I was like, well, you know, this is probably one of the most famous real estate legends. And you were like, yeah, well, my favorite Zeckendorf. So here we are talking about him. Now, one of Zeckendorf's biggest achievements and, and a fairly early one was assembling some 75 parcels of land on the east side of New York. Again, this is in like the 40s, late 40s, early 50s. So very different scene than we know today. And that entire lower east side was formerly home to slaughterhouses. Like the whole thing was slaughterhouses. I guess it's kind of close to like the meatpacking district. Um, so he assembled all that land into a bundle that eventually became the United Nations, which you just mentioned, Dan. It's interesting because this whole city of Toronto used to be called Hogtown. Did you know that? No. Yeah, like that's why you, you'll often hear Hogtown associated with the city of Toronto, but it was because they were all around like animals and slots. <laughs> you know, like the roundhouse, right? Yeah, like, yeah, That yeah. was like a cattle. That's how they, it was ah. round. They used to like run animals in a circle around the building. Anyway, now, now it's a brewery and uh, rec room, yeah. video games. So there you go. We've come a long way. So Zeckendorf also owned New York's famous Chrysler building, little known building. You might've heard of it <laughs> and the venerable Hotel Astor in Times Square, as well as the Commodore Hotel, the Drake Hotel, Hotel Manhattan, and the Chatham Hotel. He purchased Chicago's famous Roby House in 1958 before transferring ownership to the University of Chicago. He developed two of IMP. How do I even say that? Pay? Pays. I, I tried to look it up, but yeah. Famous, renowned architect, best known for designing the Louvre Museum in Paris. So he developed two of the skyscrapers of this renowned architect, uh, the Mile High Center, now part of the Wells Fargo Center in downtown Denver, and the uh, uh, Place Ville-Marie in downtown Montreal. So he crossed the border. That's why this is relevant? Exactly. Yeah, Beautiful. he did. Uh, you know, this nice is, uh, he, had, he touched Canada Thank in, you, in Zach. a way. 
Uh, Zakhanov also partnered with the Chicago real estate titan Arthur Rubloff to develop a stretch of Michigan Avenue into what Rubloff dubbed the Magnificent Mile. So again, Zeckendorf has really had an impact on on several major uh, real estate um, just just places and things. I mean, from the Chrysler Tower to Hotels Montreal to the Magnificent Mile. Now, eventually, Rubloff Company was uh, acquired by Prudential and then subsequently became a division of Berkshire Hathaway. So even Warren Buffett liked what Zeckendorf was doing. Couple small companies there, Prudential and Berkshire Hathaway. <laughs> in uh, in sixty five, Zeckendorf's risk take, taking finally caught up with him when he da, 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 declared bankruptcy. Yikes! I feel like that's like a part of the sport in the U.S. though, where <laughs> you know you just I, I I don't know. I feel like and a lot of people are like, if you've really made it, you've gone bankrupt at least once. We'll get right? there. Yeah. yeah. Hopefully, yeah. we don't get there. But uh... yeah, no. I mean, I I don't think it's as fun in Canada. I've heard. I don't know. I mean, not financial advice. Don't don't do it <laughs> in either side of the border. But uh, but yeah, he he lost his entire portfolio to lenders. Before his fall, he had projects in the pipeline that were valued at more than half a billion dollars, according to New York Times. And again, that dates back to... Yeah, half a billion in 65. I'll have to do an inflation adjustment mm-hmm. on that just to, to see how big that pipeline was. So nonetheless, his financial demise did little to tarnish his legacy. Now, today, many real estate leaders consider Zeckendorf, who died in 1976, to be New York's most visionary developer, in part because he recognized the benefits of high leverage deals earlier than most. So William Zeckendorf Sr. had started something big and his family would continue to carry on that legacy. Yeah, the guy literally invented leverage, I guess. So a billion (laughs) in 1965 had the same purchasing power as 9.68 billion in 2023. Wow, so basically 10x. Yeah, almost 10x since then, yeah. (sighs) Crazy. Yeah. Um, So... Zeckendorf Jr. was the second of three generations in one of New York's great real estate dynasties. While keeping a lower profile than his famously flamboyant father, Zeckendorf Jr. was highly successful in his own right. Unlike his father, he became known for the large-scale projects that transformed neighborhoods. The New York Times called Zeckendorf Jr. Manhattan's most active real estate developer in 1986. At that time, he was a partner in 20 projects worth well over $1 billion. His two sons, Arthur William Zeckendorf and William Lai Zeckendorf, now run the firm and are still developing world-class real estate to this day. They really never let that William name go. Eh? It's all Williams throughout the, the whole family. Um, so there's a little history on who Zeckendorf is. So let's get into the 11 lessons that we're here to talk about. And again, a shout out to the Duke of Dirt on Twitter for putting this list together. Um, again, William Zeckendorf's holdings would be $25 billion plus if he was alive today. And as New York City's real estate developer in the 1900s, he did play real life Monopoly. And actually, a little anecdote, Dan, I just got back from the cottage. I played a game of Monopoly up there. I did not win. However, it was really funny watching some of my younger brothers and other family members over lever themselves like crazy to buy houses and hotels only to have to mortgage them as soon as they had landed on someone else's. So very interesting insight into the economy. If you want to get a good understanding as to why the Canadian economy is in shambles right now, 
play a game of Monopoly with people that don't get it and uh, get them to buy hotels and houses as fast as possible and then watch them mortgage them as they have to pay um, rent on other places. My favorite part about Monopoly, it's also a good um, indication of how central banking works because in, in like the rules, it's like the <laughs> bank cannot run out of money. If yeah. the bank runs out of money, then just create more money. Guess what? The bank always wins and I was the bank, but I, I'm an honest player. So I, I did not win, but the bank did. Anyways, in his 50 years of expertise and through his autobiography, he shared 11 lessons. These are them distilled down and Dan and I are going to go one for one and talk about what they mean to us and how you can use them in your own investing journey. Number one, know your worth. His first job was leasing a half vacant building. It was a monumental task. He leased all but two small spaces. He was not congratulated. He was asked when the two would be rented. He made $40 a week for what would have earned him over $25,000. And that was his last day there. Dan, know your worth. What does that mean to you? And, and how should investors that are maybe just starting out utilize that principle because it you know it's it's unfair to say if you're just starting out you know what worth do you have right you have to show your worthiness to other people and then when does it get to a point in your investing career that you're like i know my worth now i'm going to start to say no to certain things yeah it is interesting from my perspective because i think it can happen from both sides you know a lot of people are too unwilling to, you know, work for free as an example, or take risk or risk their time in financial situations when they're getting value by by learning. But similarly, in in Zeckendorf's example, you know, he created so much value, realized that he wasn't being compensated fairly for it at all, and left as a result of that. And so I, I just think it's fascinating from my perspective. And a lot of it comes down to like really quantifying it and thinking about all of the inputs and outputs. How much is and and this goes down to like wasting times with t wasting your own time with menial tasks. Like pick what you would be worth on an hourly basis, and you, you hear this a lot in like the self help community and whatever, right? But it's like if you're you know if you consider your time worth a hundred bucks an hour, and there's another task that you know you have to go do managing a property or whatever, and you could pay somebody less than that to do mm -hmm. it, then mm -hmm. you should realistically because you have to continue to to value your time the way that you're you know you have to to be committed to that. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. You know, I, I, I was a yes man for, for so long. And I think, I think that maybe a lot of people when they're starting out should be saying yes to most things. Don't turn away opportunity, but like be self-aware as to, I'm going to throw myself at everything. I'm going to, this, this involves a lot of hard work, by the way. So don't shy away from that, but knowing your worth. And I, I think it gets to it. There's levels of this, right? So know your worth at the beginning, you probably likely don't have a ton of, of, of worth. Now you, you might, and you might have a lot of worth in, in one specific discipline, whether it's knowledge of construction or trades or accounting or whatever like that, but you should be saying yes to everything. And as, as you become a better investor and a better person, a more self-aware person, that funnel starts to get a little tighter and you can start to, you've earned the right, in my opinion, to start saying no to things. So I think that's part of like knowing your worth is when to start to say no to what would be opportunities. Yeah. I think a lot of it too is when you're young and you have the energy to burn on mm -hmm. and young, like young in your career as well, right? If you're starting out as an investor and you know, like you don't really actually Greg McEwen's book, I've talked about it a couple of times on the podcast and I think I, I was going to get you an audiobook copy of this, but it's called Essentialism and it's like yes. focusing on the tasks that are essential. 
you don't really necessarily know what those are until you've gone through a lot of the non-essential tasks. And so there is a period of time in which you're kind of on that learning curve where you do have to like go through the sucky part of being a real estate investor <laughs> or being a real estate professional or whatever. But, but during that, that's the process of learning your worth, right? Totally. Um, anyway, let's get to the next one here. So he has this thing called the Hawaiian technique while fishing on a beach in Hawaii, he conceptualized a new way to finance real estate. He would break out the transaction into various components and then separately finance each piece. And this is very much evolved into like the modern, modern day capital stack or opco propco. Each part separately was worth more than the piece of real estate as a whole. Mm -hmm. And so compartmentalization, subdivision, right? Severance, um, and then also corporate structure, opco propco, um, and, and the capital stack, I think are, are different ways that you as an, an investor can kind of think creatively about, and by the way, creatively doesn't mean take a ton of risk for no reason. It means be creative. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I love this. I just, I just picture Zeckendorf who you can't find a, a picture of him outside of a black and white picture in a suit. I picture him in like a colorful Hawaiian t-shirt here, like a, you know, fishing and just and just thinking about real estate, probably something you and I would do on a fishing trip that not that I've ever been on one. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting because this is such a standard process now, I feel like um, just like leverage is. And and really, if we look back, you know, less than 100 years ago, it was pioneers like this guy that, that started this kind of stuff out. Right. So I guess let's come up with like a simple example for this, Dan, like uh, let's say a mixed use building. He would, you know, you'd go and attract a retail tenant and find a specific investor for that because that investor understands retail space more than they understand the the units up top. Right. And then you've got a couple of residential units and then maybe you're even renting out the roof space. Uh, to, you know, telecom companies or something like that. Now you've got three or four different investors with different goals and different understandings invested in that same property rather than one person um, who likely isn't going to maybe give you everything you need. You now have different levers and different people to pull on when you need something. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah. Or even like phasing out of a deal too. Like if you're, you know, during the rehab and stabilization phase of a, of a transaction, and you need a, um, you know, higher risk lender, then that's when you take on your, you know, your private or mm. mic capital or B lender. And then, you know, when you go to stabilization and you've got uh, cash flows and rent rolls and the deal looks good on paper, then you flip over to your bank loan. And so you could do it all chronologically as well as at a point in time, right? Yeah. Having different financial partners for different phases of the, the deal. No, it's a great example. Uh, okay, number three. This one's easy. Sitting across from him. Work with the best talent. Here we go. I M P Pi. Did we figure Pay, out what it was? I think P E I. Prince Edward Island. I, I M P the architect that we mentioned earlier, famous for designing the Louvre. Uh, was the primary architect Zeckendorf worked with. At this time, it was not normal for an architect to work directly with a developer, unlike today where that is very standard procedure. They believed that quality design and visionary planning of daily life buildings. So this to me is just, is just again, more foresight that Zeckendorf had, right? Like he was like, yeah, hey, like I'm going to design the best stuff and it's going to attract the best people. Yeah, I think that, and then also like a simplification of the supply chain. Like mm. you know, if there was all, if there was a a line in in between him and the other people in the past, um, you'd never know necessarily if you know he if he was working with the best talent. Whereas you know now he's able to know that because he's literally 
face to face with them. Um, the next one on the list is choose your deals wisely. It says Zeckendorf admittedly did almost every deal that came to him. <laughs> I know guys like that. <laughs> but it ultimately led to his demise, right? One of the most legendary developers ever. And he ended his his whole thing in bankruptcy. Um, but it ultimately, so, or so, so it ultimately led to his demise. So the lesson here is if you think a deal works at the right price, some deals are, even if you think a deal works at the right price, some deals are just bad deals and you got to find, um, you got to, you got to find the ability and cultivate the ability to identify which of those or which ones are those and be selective and stick to core fundamentals. Cause it's really easy to kind of start doing the gymnastics, especially like in a huge bull run, like we were seeing where you have that, f- the underlying emotion behind your purchases, FOMO, fear of missing out. Yep. It's easy for people to start like changing the metrics to uh, fit the deal rather than, you know, making the deal fit perfect core fundamentals that you know can't go wrong. And we're seeing a lot of the residual damage of that now. Totally. I mean, you were also seeing people like fully switch up their tactics, right? Like, oh, I'm a I'm a long-term investor. I'm a buy and hold investor. Oh, but you know, now actually I kind of want to be an Airbnb investor or a short term or a flipper. And you you stray from the the investing that you understand and are good at because again you've got that FOMO and, and it usually doesn't end well. And you know, Dan, the more that we invest and, and the more that we've brought on very prudent team members um, that are much better at numbers than I am. And I'm more of the, the deal finder guy and I get real excited. I'm a bit of a cowboy out there and I kind of want to do every deal that comes across my desk. Um, you know, I've I've grown out of that. And I think that's something that a lot of younger and and uh investors not just younger age wise but younger along in your career and i've you know those who are listening who we've we've spoken to about this uh it's so true i mean like you you know saying no to a deal sometimes is is a way bigger win than getting a deal i mean we've got one deal in particular right now that we should have said no to likely it'll turn out to be okay and, and we'll talk about it more when when it is okay but you know it's um it's turned into a massive headache and and we've walked away from portfolios uh that that we were excited about that we worked on for months and you know sometime a sometimes saying no to a deal is is the best thing you can possibly do number five sales technique if a man comes in to sell you something turn the lights on with a blue hue if um if you want to sell something to someone else turn on the lights with a rosy hue if things are looking dull put a bright light if a man is a real mope, I try to take him for a drink. <laughs> Get him to take a drink. Get him to take a drink. There you go. So, uh, I mean, <laughs> sales tactics might have changed a little bit. Maybe not really. But I mean, probably, yeah. I think that people have just like, you know, you look at, you like listen back to like old like Zig Ziglar stuff, right? Like, <laughs> you know, and people are saying the same stuff today that they were back then, but they just like, I think people the world has kind of gotten away from that. Like, is it like, sh- not like, sh- like sleaziness, I guess like the used car salesman-iness. like, you know, you get like Hormozzi as an example, who's mm-hmm. like talks a lot about sales or like Gary Vee or, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of these people where they're just like direct and they use plain language to, to, and they're like transparent and ad- admit how the process works. Um, whereas some of these like past instances, I mean, I just think s- sales, before was always it was a little bit more of like a sleazy thing and now it's not I that's probably the wrong word but it's just like i think that the the language has changed right i think i think honesty and transparency in sales 
is is a much newer thing. I, I know what you're saying, right? It used to be like a little bit more manipulative, a little bit more trickery almost. And those probably aren't the right words either. But it now it's just, I think there's so much, people are just more educated now. Yeah. And to try to sell someone on something. And I mean, we're seeing a lot right now. Like, let's talk pre-construction for a second, right? right. Like, I think that's a good example of, if you're selling something and you, you know, kind of snake oiled salesman someone a couple of years ago into a bad investment, well, the tide's turned. You're both caught swimming naked now. Um, you know, what kind of sales technique did you did you use on them? Or did you go in and saying, "Hey, these are the risks and these are the rewards. Let's have a let's have a solid understanding of what you're actually getting into." I mean, you know, you and I joke all the time. We talk more people out of deals than we've ever talked people into doing deals. The only time I ever talked anyone into doing a deal is a partner like you or one of our other partners. I'm like, guys, this is so good. We can't pass it up. And then even sometimes we still do pass it up. Whereas, you know, ignorance, ignorance is bliss in a bull market. Uh, the minute that turns, ignorance is realized and it can really hurt. Yeah. And I think a lot of it in the book as well, he talks about not, not really talks about it, but like the, the conveyance is that, you know, the way that you sell, the way that you transact kind of sets the the stage of the culture for the subsequent relationship. And I think that's an important piece to think about as well, is that, you know, the way if you're selling honestly at the beginning and selling driven by value at the beginning, then that's how you can expect the relationship to, you know, be from that moment on. Yeah, exactly. You, you get to kind of create the culture of the relationship during the sales process or the sales technique. The next piece is saving money. Uh, number six is save money. After his first closing, he made a commission of eight thousand dollars, which is quite a large amount of money at Must the time. Be like a hundred grand or something yeah, nowadays. I'll, yeah. I'll run the number on it. Give me a second. <laughs> and uh, he decided he must take a European vacation and stay in the nicest <laughs> hotels with private transport ever. When he returned, he had not a dime left. <laughs> sounds like half the realtors I know like in Toronto. Yeah, bro brokerage culture hasn't changed, eh? <laughs> Oh man, where do we start with this one? Um, look, as as a guy who's who's had variable income for a long time, uh, I know the temptation. You know, when you've been struggling, and anyone out there who's listening that is a realtor, a mortgage agent, a an entrepreneur of any kind, a real estate investor, waiting for your first big money moment on your first refi or something like that, it's tough. It's tough not to take that. Fifty, hundred, two hundred fifty thousand dollar check, and go buy that new car or that cottage, or take you know your spouse on that dream vacation, or whatever it is that you're tempted to spend that money on. But and again, there's people much better off to talk about saving money and, and what to do with money than us, because we're just going to go buy real estate with it. But when you get that big money moment, like Zackendorf did with his first commission check, and I'm waiting on the numbers from Dan here. Um, oh, 58,000. 58,000. Okay. So not crazy, but still, still, still a pretty good amount of money. Yeah. So you, you get 60 grand. It's a nice vacation. You get 60 grand. You're going to Europe. You're doing that in style in the, in the, in the fifties in the early fifties. So it, it's just, you just be careful. Don't let that, don't let the money go to your head, live below your means. Again, all, all investing, real estate, stock, whatever can all be put down to delayed gratification. So delay that gratification and that 50 or $60,000, trip you know you wait another couple of years and that could be very very different and and realized in a very different way yeah i mean investing literally is the exercise of delaying gratification like it's putting that eight thousand dollars into an investment that will yield infinite returns exactly rather than a vacation that will yield a very short 
period of time returns, which Hell is making you feel good. <laughs> yeah, I had a blast, I bet. Uh, speaking of vacations, number seven, the best deals are done outside of the office. This is a good one. I gave myself this one. Uh, ownership of Club Monte Carlo was great fun. This is a quote from Second Door himself. I love how this like old dude who's just saying was great fun. <laughs> was great fun. I had my own corner table and a full attention of waiters and a chef for five years. I dined at the club several evenings a week and did as much business there as I did at my Madison Avenue office. Well, first of all, that's pretty badass. Pretty badass. Yeah. Second of all, uh, a little harder to do these days, but I mean, look, you know, even a, a modern day example, right? You and I have talked about Ryan Pineda and how he does his meetings on the golf course. Like there's literally, I think he does one day a week where you can literally pay to go golfing with him. And I'm, I bet you he, he closes every single deal that someone's out golfing with them. If somebody's paying to be there with him, I imagine. I'm trying like, to get to that point yeah, right yeah. now. So if anyone would like to take time. me golfing. Yeah. Um, you just got to put it in your calendar. Somebody sent me, didn't somebody send that to you too? Like he has like a nine hole. It was a mortgage broker. It was a, yeah, it's one of uh if, and he, he's a listener to the show. He's, yeah. he's helping us out on the, on the West coast. Great guy. Um, and yeah, he's taking his clients. Yeah, you just say, you can just book right in his calendar book, link. Book a nine, nine hole holes. with me. I'm like, yeah, that is genius. That is so, sweet. look, I mean, you know, the office, and, and this is a contentious topic nowadays because we talk a lot about working from home and what's happening with the office. If you hadn't, if you haven't listened to that two part series by uh, Simone from the Canadian Investor Podcast, our Podfathers, and Dan, um, they basically took took the two smartest guys from each show, the smartest guy from each show and put them, put the heads together, talk about commercial real estate and the future of it. So, so go listen to that. And it's some really great insights, but um, just to talk about the office, you know, the office, I love going to the office, but relationships are, are so important and developing a relationship with someone happens outside of the office as well. It can happen at a cottage. It can happen on the golf course. It can, it can happen literally on, on a walk, on a cot, like going to get a coffee. It doesn't have to be that strict, you know, let's put suits on and go to the office like Zeckendorf probably had to do back in the day. It was probably less popular to do that back then. Nowadays, I think it's a little more accepted to, to take these less traditional routes, but go wherever you feel comfortable and try to build relationships in the best way. I mean, I know people that literally rent boats and have boat parties and get a ton of business that way. So, Find whatever you enjoy doing and try to get business out of that. And that way it doesn't feel like work. It just feels like you're doing what you want to be doing regardless. Yeah. No, it's a, I, and I think that it is a bit of a luxury in the fullness of time, but exactly. Uh, yeah. Like the, the office itself is really, you know, it's a centralized place for people to meet. You know, if you're down on Bay Street, you're close to banks, right? You're close mm. to other head, head offices of other places. But eventually later in your career, when you've got enough of the sales skill and enough of the relationships built, then you can kind of start commanding where, those meetings take place. Next on the list is create a plan and be relentless. To lease the office building, he would take the elevator to the top of each building and he had a simple opening line. I understand your lease is expiring and I'd like to show you space at 32 Broadway. So he I'll would take just, it. yeah, you know, it's funny because like I cold call, I still, I still do. And, um, I had for a long period of time, and my, my opening line, I mean, a lot of people want to, you know, get their pitch in and, you know, be all like smiles and talk about, I don't know, like, you know, kind of put the fluff on or whatever. I don't like to waste people's time. So like my, my opener was literally like, I'm, I have somebody who's interested in buying your property. Do you want to sell it? Right. Love I mean, that. That's an oversimplification, but I don't know. It's like, 
give the person the opportunity to say no before you spend a, a minute pitching some, you know, like, hi, I'm so-and-so from... Yeah. And then they tell you, it's like, oh, let me transfer you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Or they've already hung up or... Yeah, I mean, I, I, look, like, first of all, one, this resonates with me because... God, over over a decade ago at this point, and I worked uh, at a boutique commercial real estate office. This is exactly what they had me doing. They're like, yeah, I literally go and hit every unit in the building. And I did it in person for a while. And it was, it was tough. Like you, I mean, it was very unsuccessful for, you know, 99% of the time. And then I got the biggest check of my life at that point after, after knocking on one, one of the right doors. And but then this, you went on a trip to Europe. And then and I blew it all the <laughs> <laughs> I actually paid off my student debt, so nice. a little more prudent. But I did go on a little trip, Nicaragua. It wasn't yeah. that expensive. Um, oh, wait, you got your name, Nick? Yeah. <laughs> um, but I think the the thing here is creating a plan, right? I mean, like going going head on into into anything. Like you can, it's very easy to to spin your tires, especially in real estate, real estate investing, business in general, entrepreneurship. Especially for an entrepreneur, you don't. You don't have a boss telling you what to do every day. You've got to get up and figure out what the best use of your time is every day. And that is very difficult for some people. It's difficult for me and I've been doing it for 10 years. Um, so having a plan and sticking to it, I, I think is, is absolutely huge. And, and I mean, Zeckendorf obviously did, did a great job up until he didn't. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. Like the way that I always like to look at this is like a set of stairs, right? Like, and mm. I think I've mentioned this concept before, but you have a goal. The goal is at the top of the stairs and there's however many steps it takes. If it's a flight of stairs, you got like 10, 13 steps maybe to get there. And then you really just need to take the first step. You don't need to even know what the fifth step really looks like. I mean, it'd be nice to know what all 13 steps look like, but they're going to change throughout the process. You know, for me as a real estate investor, the biggest, the first step one that you can possibly do, everybody always like, they come up to us at events, you know, they send us messages. What's the first step? First step is find a deal, I think, right? Yeah. Like really, if you, you know, there's a lot of stuff that happens before that preparation work, but you know, the actual step is find a deal. It's either going to be a good deal or a bad deal. If it's a good deal, do it. If it's a bad deal, go find another deal. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and then step two is, you know, doing the deal, finding the financing, whatever it is. Right. It's just funny from my perspective, like, cause everybody wants to make this into like some, um, scientific yeah. process <laughs> probably so they can make money off of you and selling you that process or whatever other guru stuff goes on. But the, you know, the, the truth is it's like, just do the next right thing. Mm -hmm. That's it. One step at a time. There you go. guys. Dan is always thinking one step ahead, like a carpenter. No, it's like, uh, what's that? What's that? Yeah. <laughs> no, they have to actually do it in one piece. <laughs> no, no. Um, Dom Toretto, is that what it is? Living mm -hmm. my living my life a quarter mile at a time. That sounds about. Was right. that Fast and the Furious? <laughs> is, it, is that from? Is it Dom Toretto? Is that the thirteenth movie or? No, it wasn't the first sure. one. <laughs> um, okay, number nine here: value in branding of real estate. He realized assets owned by some of New York's finest families, back then the Rockefellers, the Astors, and etc., traded at higher values compared to similar assets. We see similar stuff today. If you can manufacture sentiment, you can create value. Ooh, that's powerful. What do you think about that, Dan? Yeah, it's it's interesting, right? It's like that blue sky value. And there are firms, I would say, in certain cities that are known as being good landlords. Like there is culture associated with it or about real value, intrinsic value associated with it. But then there's also perceptional value, right? Um, I mean, I think that you can do that on a small scale as well. Mm-hmm. If you are somebody who's known as being a good landlord in your area, 
right? They can see, people can see your buildings and they know they're good, right? I've had that person as a landlord or I know my friend at least in, a, in their building and they had a really good experience. Those things carry weight, right? And, and they might actually help you to command value, maybe not instantly and intrinsically, but in the fullness of time by getting higher rents or, you know, people becoming more likely to want to lease your units, right? People wanting to buy portfolios from certain skilled operators. Like there are REITs who will just follow operators around and say, I know I will buy assets from this person because I know that I can guarantee that there's going to be very little headaches when I take over that portfolio from that person. Yeah. Love it. I mean, I think, you know, I think branding transcends real estate, right? I mean, look at some of the biggest brands in the world. No one questions an iPhone or a pair of Nikes at this point. You just go buy them because you you trust them. Um, and I think it also, as you said, in the fullness of time, right? You don't just design a cool logo and and you know all of a sudden you're not you know now you're the coolest prop tech company that's that's doing whatever. It, it takes it takes time. To do that, and it takes reputation, and I think that's why it's so important to protect your reputation and to build it with integrity and and character throughout that whole process. Because again, once you get into real estate investing, you realize that it is a small community, especially here in Canada. Like it is, it is very small, and even in the states where you know we're they're ten times larger than us, it's still a small community there. And just anyone listening, anyone that's in marketing or or any any small community, you realize that your industry is small and you start to know the key players in that industry. And if you start messing around with people, your brand gets immediately affected and it can take decades to build a brand and one bad move to mess it up. So protect that at all costs. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, next up, second last is don't bargain. Interesting piece of advice, but you know, it says if, if a property is worth a price, pay it, avoid haggling. You end up, with much more amicable terms and relationships at the end. And there are no winners when you haggle a price down to the last dollar. And it's funny, you know, Chuck always says this. He says, pennies in the sands of time. I love right? that line. Yeah, it's yeah. such a good, such yeah. a good line. But, um, you know, and, and who does he say it to more often than not is the, <laughs> the toughest negotiator that I know yeah. on our team, right? Um, and, and, but Johnny and I have lost deals in yeah. the past because of, you know, trying to, trying to push too hard on price. And mm-hmm. we lost it. We, you know, over the process of, of, um, negotiating a better bid came in yeah. like that happened, right? Twice. And that, and that better bid can be only slightly more, but you haven't pissed that person off because you right. haven't been haggling them. So they're more likely to just mm-hmm. take that other one and walk away from all the work that you may have put into that deal already. For sure. Yeah. I mean, a couple of those would have been life-changing deals, mm-hmm. like actually. And, um, it, you know, it, like, I think it's part of the, the learning process, but, um, I, I would agree with this. And I think a lot of people really do focus on it. But at the end of the day, it's, you know, how do we not push too hard for, you know, 10 or 20 or 50 grand um, on price, by the way, like not 50 grand cash. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It, you know, we would have had the assets that we don't have today. And so it, it's a lesson that I'm fortunate enough that I learned young, but you, it, it is easy to push somebody hard. And on the same, it, it's, it's, you know, the, the, the same thing too, is like, if you're really, really trying to, to make something, it's going back to that, trying to fit like the square peg in the round hole, right? Mm-hmm. You're trying to make something work. It, it, maybe it wasn't supposed to work and 
at the same on the same token, you know, when you're trying to bargain so hard, there's just as much power in walking away and being like, I can't make this deal fit, right? If you're if it's a good deal, buy it. If it's a bad deal, then don't try and make it into a good deal by whittling away on, you know, cut you know, carving away at the corners. Just walk. Yeah. No, I, I completely agree. And I, I also want to look at this outside of just specifically a, a property. Right now, I mean, that's one thing to negotiate on a property. And, and some properties do deserve to be negotiated on without question. Some people price properties specifically to be negotiated on. So take this take this point with a grain of salt here. We've talked about this before, Dan, about, about bargaining with people like contractors, property managers, people on your team that you want to have that relationship with for the next two, five, 10, 20 years. You don't want to start off a relationship with a contractor beating them down to their absolute lowest cost where they're barely making any money and the relationship's kind of not great and they can't wait to finish up the job and get out of there. And they're probably not going to come back and do another job for you because they know how you operate. They're you're going to beat them down every time, you know, bargain when there's a place to bargain. And I think just pay the price when there's a the price to be paid. And you'll learn pretty quickly, like, you know, you've paid the price and the contractor doesn't do good work. Okay. Well, you learned a lesson the hard way, but I think it really comes down to, you know, maybe don't bargain with, with people as much as you may bargain with assets. Like if, you know, if, if an asset is priced that it does need to be negotiated, then do that. But if a contractor and you've done your due diligence and this contractor is is good. And I'm using contractors as an example because these guys get beat up more than anyone, especially by investors. It is so much more important to have a trustworthy contractor that'll pick up your phone calls, that'll go do random jobs for you and that kind of stuff than it is to save, you know, five or 10 grand on that first basement renovation. Couldn't agree more. Perfect. Okay. That takes us to number 11. Help others. Money comes naturally as a result of service. Aid and support the projects of others. It often leads to your own success. Dan, take this one away. I mean, you know, I say this a lot, right? People will ask me all the time how to how to create or how, how, to, how to start or do something or accomplish something in the industry. And my thing is just like lead with value. Like just ask one person what they need. One person who's doing what you want. Like I, I do this every day. I ask developers, you know, multi-billion dollar firms what they need from a property perspective. You know, what what kind of sites are you looking for? And they'll tell me exactly. And all I need to do is go and find that. That's very difficult to go and find it. But if I do, I've built a relationship and created value for some of the most valuable people in the country. And that usually is a good thing to do, right? They usually... I usually get compensated financially for that or <laughs> or it helps you kind of take steps, right? Because you, you, you start solving bigger problems. You get paid in proportion to the size of the problems that you solve. Yeah. And just find bigger problems. Yeah. I love that. Um, you know, I think, I think Dan, this one inherently resonates with, with both of us. <clears throat> Helping others. I mean, that's why we endeavored on this journey to start this podcast, right? We, we saw a, a gap in the market and we were like, you know what? There's a lot of people that are asking the same kind of questions that we were asking years and years ago. And, and we had to seek those answers out and, you know, helping others by putting out this content, this heavily researched content that we've been putting out twice a week now for over a year has probably been one of the biggest life changers, um, that, I, that I've ever had. And, and I, I think I could say, say the same for you from a business perspective anyways, that, you know, the ability to help people 
pays dividends tenfold, not overnight. You're not going to go hold the door for one person and win the lottery. But if you can start to actually help people in a meaningful way, it will 100% come back to, to, to pay dividends for you. And there's so many ways to help people in our industry, which is real estate. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Should we leave it at that? Or I guess we'll wrap up with make sure you check out our merch, realestatemerch.ca. Yes. Live, laugh, leverage, baby. Yeah. We got some new uh, new concepts coming up soon as yeah, well. Yeah. These are really good. They are good. Right? <laughs> They're really good. Yeah, it's like a IRR, which is internal rate of return, but it's like a Rolls Royce logo. Yeah. <laughs> and then a cat logo that says cap. Yeah. We'll go... go uh, do those for as long as it we can if, before we get C and D from those companies. If Rolls Royce sues us, we've done something. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then go to realestatemeetups.ca. We have meetups happening all the time, all over the country. Um, there's a really cool one that is happening in Toronto, actually. Missing Middle Meetup that uh, Nate, who just joined me at Rare, um, Missing Middle Specialist Realtor, is putting on. Um, all all kinds of stuff like that. Like they're. Um, September, I think we're we're starting our coast to coast uh, panel event. So we're going to do a quarterly panel event. So that's going to be focused on missing middle or how to build. Basically, in Toronto, it'd be more fourplex focused because they just upzone to fourplex. Mm-hmm. But coast to coast, really, like how to build multiplexes. Yeah. Um, and so, if you're interested in hosting one of those in September, September 12th is going to be the date in in your city. Um, or if you want to send us a message to see if there's one happening in your city, they should all be posted on Meetup.com. Which is if you go to realestatemeetups.ca, it'll forward you to that, and then they should all be posted within the next couple of weeks. They're in the show notes as well. Yeah, yeah. So go check them out there. Yeah, Amazing. awesome. Yeah, thanks so much for listening, everybody. Hope you got a ton of value out of today and learned a lot about one of the greatest real estate developers of all time. Thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you soon. The Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast is for entertainment purposes only, and it is not financial advice. Nick Hill is a mortgage agent with Premier Mortgage Center and a partner in the G&H Mortgage Group. License number 10317, agent license M21004037. Daniel Foch is a real estate broker licensed with Rare Real Estate, a member of the Canadian Real Estate Association, the Toronto Real Estate Board, and the Ontario Real Estate Association.